0: Today we host Alok Goyal on the show. Alok is currently a venture capitalist and a partner at Stellaris Venture Partners. He's also on the board of Lingua Next and he's an independent director on the board of eClerks. He focuses on enterprise software and outsourcing investments. So without further ado, here is Alok. Um, Hi Alok, thanks for joining us today and taking time and talking to us. No, thank you for giving me an opportunity as well, Matej. (laughs) So uh, as we do with um, all our guests, uh, it, it, can you please uh, introduce yourself, uh, the body of work that you have done so far, and how all of that has kind of led you to do what you are doing right now?
1: So my, uh, I mean, if it, if I think about what my career has been, it's been a bit of a Brownian motion. A um, little bit of too many things. I started off, I mean, post my undergrad in computer science. I, I was getting some biased. Um, no, no, so no, no, yeah, sorry. I started... I started out thinking that I wanted to be a professor and a researcher in computer science, attempted a PhD. In between my PhD, I thought I wanted to start a business back in India. So I quit my PhD in US, and I came back, tried my business, didn't fly. Then I joined a technical job with a company called Cadence. Didn't enjoy. I thought it was not making me an entrepreneur that I wanted it to be. And then spent six years in strategy consulting then um, I lost my job because of the downturn in 2001 2002 didn't get any job and uh, somehow actually entered sales because that's the only job i got so in that respect i'm actually more of an accidental sales guy than, <laughs> than someone you know who had planned a career in that direction and i genuinely mean it i would never have gone into sales unless i had to unless i had to worry about paying my electricity bills and then I did that for 10 years, um, and uh, now in venture capital, so I focus on B2B technology investments, uh, still my early years in the in the VC space.
0: <laughs> okay, so uh, it's um, uh, not very surprising that a lot of guests that we have um, on the show uh, have all had um, similar trajectories. They start somewhere um, and then kind of, you know, wade through their um, careers and end up someplace where they actually enjoy what they are doing at some point in time
1: but <laughs> well, i think i I've, I've enjoyed pretty much every part of the career it's just that i think you as a person also keep changing yeah
0: and you also you also keep discovering yourself through the process yes. yeah so you said that uh, you kind of uh, did sales for 10 years right so that's how i know you as well because i was part of one of your teams and uh, right. uh, so let's let's take this conversation in that angle first and then we can kind of come back to a li- little sure. um, other things so there 's a lot of talk about you know the buyer behavior having changed uh, that um, uh, the entire sales conversation starts very very late in the uh, buying cycle uh, fifty to sixty percent of um, buyer discovery already does on the uh, on the internet by himself and so how do you think all of this has led or all of this has an impact on how we sell today? Let's talk about B2B sales uh, uh, from, a, from a B2B sales perspective. So I uh, I actually concur with the questions itself,
1: first of all Mukesh, because I do believe that it has changed. And I think in many ways it is changing faster than we are ready to believe. So let me actually, I'm gonna dive a little bit into history. You know, traditionally B2B sales, and I'm limiting myself to technology domain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, traditionally, it was always sold to CIOs, typically always to large enterprise, very much feet on street-oriented sales process, until salesforce.com came into the picture. And contrary to conventional thinking, they started going for smaller deals, smaller customers, and they realized that that model was not scaling, and they ventured into inside sales. And to be honest, in early 2000, none of us ever believed that that is a model of sales that's that That is even feasible. And, you know, somewhere along that path, so many changes have happened in the last decade. And the the drivers are the following. Number one, in many cases, the buyers are getting younger and younger. And that is very closely related to another trend, which is that the buyers are not necessarily the IT buyers. The buyers are actually, in many, many cases, the business buyers. And if you begin to look at the statistics, you will still find that the majority of IT spend is still coming from the CIO and his team. So you can argue, so what is all this sort of hoopla about? But you sort of peel the onion. And if you look at, you know, not the maintenance kind of spend, if you look at truly new spend, which is going towards new capability, basically. 75% of that spend is coming from business buyers as opposed to IT buyers. And that is a very significant shift. And that is again closely correlated to what I said first, which is a younger buyer. If I am ahead of marketing, I am ahead of sales, you know, these are not your 55, 60 year olds. These can be your 35 year olds, 40 year olds. And uh, therefore, their behavior in the way they buy is very, very different. Uh, the sales cycles have become much shorter. And they're much smarter to your point. They actually do a lot of discovery online today. They do a lot of comparison. They do a lot of knowledge or understanding online, by the time they come to you it's actually sometimes I'm finding even there is a thin line of separating that are you selling to them or are they coming to you? Because in many cases they will come to your site, they will download a product, they will try it. Where you come into picture is support them as opposed to sell them. So sometimes there is a whole class of companies today which are not selling but they're actually only supporting selling has converted only to marketing so marketing has actually gone much deeper and deeper into enterprise uh, software sales today compared to what we had imagined it to be and i think in that respect that buyer behavior has changed completely
0: so let's unpack this uh, uh, concept of marketing becoming more and more critical than um, the sales engine as you rightly said there are a lot of lot of organizations uh, which have actually started using marketing as their key uh, lever of growth rather than having uh, people on the ground so what do you think uh, um, does that mean for a b2b sales organization so uh, do we continue to see that the sales organization will exist and will continue to grow or do you see that the sales organization the people on the ground kind of you know shrinking and becoming more and more critical uh, uh, the marketing function uh, and the internet uh, uh, centric approach to uh, buyer behavior and discovery becoming more and more critical or how do you see this panning out probably in the next five, ten years?
1: So first of all I do believe that the role of marketing has increased. However, let's assume I was selling nuclear reactors on behalf of General Electric to someone. Their marketing will still not play a role. That is truly a sales game still. It will take multi-year sales cycle. So I think even in the enterprise scenario, it depends on who you are selling to. If you are still selling to the Fortune 500s, I would argue that the role that marketing plays is still important, but still much lesser uh, in that kind of domain. But if you are selling to the SMB, There, the the, the role of marketing is very, very high. So again, I think it's a grayscale. So if I'm selling a tax preparation software to very small companies, so let's actually take like an Intuit QuickBooks, right? A small shopkeeper buys QuickBooks. That kind of a software cannot be sold. It has to be marketed. And that is because in general, sales costs are high. And therefore, you want to create a pull as opposed to do a push. However, any software that requires any level of human touch Effectively requires sales, whether that's a push sales or a support sales, whatever form it might take. So, I don't think that the value of selling has diminished by the way. I think the methodology has changed quite a bit. Uh, simultaneously, the importance of pull has increased, but it depends, as I said, again, on the segment that you're targeting. Uh, but it is vital, therefore, in many situations for sales to create the kind of velocity and volume that people didn't think was possible earlier.
0: Interesting. So so what I understand from whatever you've just said is that it is becoming more and more critical that sales and marketing start working together, which is going to be more and more critical. And uh, the reality of the fact is that um, in a lot of organizations, at least most of the organizations that I know of, um, they don't work well together at all. So there is a very clear uh clearly defunct relationship in most of the organization so how do you bridge the gap no
1: it is very true and um, uh, the point you make is a good one in general you will find sales guys always telling marketing people that they are not giving them enough leads or quality leads marketing people will always be complaining that they're giving them so much but nobody's acting on them acting on them (laughs) right and uh, the reality is that it's a pipe it's a pipe that begins with the first touch with the customer to the point that not only you get the check and deliver the software but you support them on an ongoing basis and we create these artificial distinctions between that these first seven steps is marketing and the and the next six steps are sales the reality is that it continues and we are the ones who create organizational boundaries and humans being humans the moment you create these organizational boundaries we tend to create these differences uh, and i think therefore organizationally that alignment is very very critical uh, how different companies achieve is up to them
0: so so any examples of uh, uh, an organization which has done this really well if, if, if you've come across an organization that has actually done this really well i think
1: many of the newer age companies actually accomplish this much much better especially those that are going in the inbound sales direction which is that marketing's job is not just to sort of talk about a brand but they are far more measurable in the sense that actually somebody calls in, they click on a link to come to your site. I think, and the other thing that has happened, by the way, which didn't exist earlier, is that with certain kinds of tools, today, you can actually measure the closed loop of marketing as well. In the sense, from the time somebody comes in, what happened to that person in the entire sales cycle, those things have become far more measurable. And I think those tools are also creating a bit of alignment, which was not feasible earlier. There's a lot more data, by the way, which is being used today, and the amount of signs being used in the sales process or marketing process is far higher than at least I think at least I was used to. I think we were all hand waving and making making some very sort of uh, sweeping statements without any fact base behind it.
0: <laughs> Interesting. So let's just uh, shift base a little bit here and talk about uh, selling and um, uh, leading a sales organization. So one of the things that uh, uh, I have seen or people. Uh, in conversation has come up again and again is the fact that the sales leaders that we have today uh, have grown in their organization in a very different era than what we are in right now. So the kind of things that they used to do and which worked for them uh, does not necessarily work today. So how does a sales leader then adapt himself? Number one, should he adapt at all? So do you think it is critical for them to adapt? And if yes, then what do you think these sales leaders can actually do um, in order to be current in terms of their understanding of the sales process and to support their sales teams?
1: So there are a few things as a sales leader which I think are which were relevant then and are relevant now. And those truths, in my opinion, are not changing in a hurry, and which include which which may sound very obvious to you, but you know, as a leader, your job is to hire the best. Um, uh, and in sales, it becomes even more critical because these are think of them as revenue generating machines, which you are uh, which you are deploying, and your ability to see sort of separate the wheat and the chaff quickly early in the process is important number two is setting the priorities i mean given today's world where we are where new product introductions or changes in existing products are happening so fast the organizational priorities keep keep changing i think therefore a leader does the job of setting the priorities for the salespeople. people his or her job is also to coach uh, and that coaching job again will will continue to remain. Um, number four, they are the ones who need to create the environment to succeed, right? I mean, we think of salespeople as coin operators, but the reality is that the same coin operator can produce a lot more in one organization and may produce much lesser in the in the other one. The difference is the, is the, is the environment that they are in as well. And therefore, I think a sales leader does that job of creating the environment that, that a salesperson needs to succeed. Also importantly, that fifth one is to fire the people not working out. And when I say fire, it may mean that moving people to different roles, it may mean literally firing the employee. And I think a sales leader's job is constantly pruning out as well. I mean, usually with startups, we tell them that for every sales person that you need, you need to hire two or three, because you'll have to fire the rest. And you unfortunately have to go through that sales cycle, or rather that experimentation cycle. And therefore, one has to continuously go. Coming back to the question though, you originally asked, which is how do you have to adapt? I think the thing that has changed very dramatically is the amount of data that is there in sales cycles today. So whether it is from a value perspective, from a volume perspective, or a velocity perspective, the amount of data that is available today is humongous. So I will give you just a couple of examples. There is a company I met which is going to enterprise sales companies. And what they do is that they look at all the historical patterns. So let's assume that, you know, this company was working with, um, uh, this company had gone to a software company, which was getting 50,000 leads per month of, for one of their products. Now, traditionally, 50,000 leads usually get first in, first out. Somebody will look at a lead, they will call the prospect, they will ask them whether they have a budget or not, whether they are going to close in three months or not, blah, 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 blah. But there is, I mean, you only have so many hours in a day, you can only make so many calls. Why do it on a first-in, first-out basis? Can you apply some more intelligence? Now, when you're getting 50,000 leads a month, you can apply a lot more pattern matching from the past on which are likely to be the highest quality lead, primarily on the basis of which industry they're coming from, or who was the person who that lead came from, blah, blah, blah. And therefore you can begin to do pattern matching to increase the chances of success. Similarly downstream in the sales process, today people use a lot of data. For example, we have a portfolio company, which is selling in U S. They even go to the extent of doing a B testing of their messaging. What they do is to half the prospects, they will go with message A to other half the prospects, they will go with a message B and they will see sort of what percentage actually move forward in the sales cycle and so you continuously experiment, look at the outcome data and adjust. And that kind of science that people apply using data to sales cycles today is very different. I think at least in the era I did sales, we believe that sales happens because of our charm that we weave in front of the customer. And and maybe there's truth to it in the large enterprise sales. But I think that those notions are changing very, very rapidly, at least in the high volume sales process.
0: So if I understand what you just said, it... One of the things that sales leaders need to do to continue to remain relevant and to add a value to their sales team is to understand, number one, the criticality of the amount of data that they have and to bring a little bit of science into how they use the data, not just themselves, but also their teams. Uh, is that... Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and I, I also begin to believe that most
1: good sales guys are very good at closing. They try to weave their magic in that just before the quarter end but the reality is what happens in this quarter was probably orderly underwritten three quarters back when you generated the pipe and in general the science of pipe generation has always been underestimated and uh, great sales leaders will put a lot of emphasis on generation of quality pipe because of a lot of good
0: downstream things happen because you generated a great quality pipe in the
1: in the first place
0: so so if i understand correctly number 1 you need to, so the four or five things that you said, which is to hire, hire good people. Um, number two is uh, 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 set a culture where uh, uh, you, you get performers. Um, number three is uh, to prune out uh, bad performers, whether it is by giving, uh, giving them a better job or a different job or to actually right. literally fire them, to have, uh, to coach people. So that's one thing that I would like to unpack a little bit more because, uh, a lot of times what has happened is uh, uh, as sales leaders we have the way we have worked uh, as you rightly said that you know uh, we used to uh, kind of you know think that uh, it's our charm that actually got the sale and the way the uh, the sales cycle worked today is very different so how do you as a leader coach some of these sales executives who are selling in a very different environment so what is it that uh, that leaders can can do and what are areas where they should probably not get involved in?
1: Hmm. You know, a leader, in my mind, in some of these situations, while we all celebrate success, sometimes we don't celebrate what went into or celebrating the drivers of success as opposed to success itself. Many times, good things happen not because that's how you planned them to be, because it just happened. And to provide a certain kind of method to the madness, you have to appreciate people who are providing the method itself. And that is actually a bit of a culture setting as well. We all celebrate when a $20 million deal gets done, and we are all gaga because we just made the quarter. And that one person who did it becomes a superhero. Uh, but we again forget that, that heroism may not repeat itself in the next quarter, and therefore we have to also go into appreciating the appreciating the pro- people following the right process and even coaching them on that right process is important. And most sales leaders actually do not appreciate the method part itself; it is the outcome only which is uh, which is celebrated. And in my view, is that by the time just the outcome happens, it is too late to correct anything. I don't know if I'm answering
0: your question directly or not. No, no. So actually that kind of uh, helps me transition into the next question, which is about uh, some of the things that sales leaders leaders get wrong. So what are some of the common mistakes that you have seen in your experience sales leaders do? And uh, uh, is there a way for a sales leader to correct himself or understand that, okay, I might be going wrong here and correct himself? Or do they need coaching as well?
1: So all sales leaders need coaching as well. I think nobody... Nobody's born perfect uh, in these situations and everybody needs that coaching. Everybody needs that help. At least I can tell you, I I needed a lot of help because I I didn't come from a sales background to begin with. But in general, things that people get, get wrong, I think when you judge people only by their numbers or you judge too soon, that's actually a mistake we often do. And the reason we often do that mistake is that sales is in general a brutal environment, You know, there is somebody who's beating me from my top and uh, that sort of beating down then just sort of flows to the chain. And we are always in a rush that if you have not made your number this quarter and if you don't make it again next quarter, you're fine. But I think that's a mistake. That is a mistake. You have to actually judge for the inputs and not just for the outputs. So that discipline is very hard to create. I also think that there is a bit of a culture in sales which is that people believe that the only motivation is through fear and and, and inspection. I mean, I was often asked that, tell me your top 10 deals or top five deals and give me your sales, give me your close plan. And then there'll be 17 people on a call who will pick 35 holes in that close plan. The reality is that that the deal is not going to close any faster or slower, just because there are 35 smart people or 17 smart people, my apologies, giving me 35 different things which are wrong with my close plan. It doesn't happen that way, right? So, but I do think that sales in general breeds a lot of fear and inspection-oriented motivation process, which I don't think actually in my mind normally works. But I also think equally important, and I'm going to contradict my first statement now, is that many sales leaders, they hesitate to let people go. And I think an ability to let people go is also important. And, And a good rule to follow um, and I might have mentioned this you in the past, but I'm still going to mention it now, which is one of my bosses in SAP told me, is that a, a great rule to decide whether you should let a person go or not is assume for the same role you had a headcount today. Would you hire this person for that role or not? And if you're convinced that you're not going to hire this person, that means you should let the person go. And, uh, but keeping that discipline is hard, but I think that's often another mistake that uh, that sales leaders make And the last thing, which I think is a softer thing, is just an aspect of culture. Having certain consistency. And culture is about what gets appreciated, what doesn't get appreciated. But And I'm, I'm going to give you an example which you might be able to relate to. I don't remember when you came into SAP India. But when Ranjan came into SAP India, he wanted to transform the culture from selling small things to selling big things. And he wanted people to think big. He wanted people to orchestrate larger deals and not just do what is easy uh, and and just immediately in front of you. And it was my second quarter as a true quota carrying sales guy with him. And just towards the end of the quarter, we dropped 9 million euros in our commit. And I was a culprit of dropping about 7 out of, the, of, of those 9. And that's because there was a 5 million euro deal that we dropped one hour because before the close of the quarter. You can imagine how much flak I thought I will get. But I did not get even a little bit flak, even though India missed its quarter, Ranjan never came to me and said that Alok, you did not do this or you did not do that. He knew that I had done everything possible right down to the wire that I could possibly do to close. It didn't close. That's the reality. What happened next quarter? Next quarter, I thought that let me try and I wanted to do the large deals and I again went with the same same methodology. And we closed two large deals on the two last days of the quarter. Now I could have again missed. Had Ranjan not shown the support to me in the previous quarter, I would not have gone towards closing those two large deals. In the following quarter, I would have said, you know, those things don't get appreciated. Let me just go and cherry pick what's easy to do. Let me just make my numbers at least stand on a ground where I don't get fired. But I still took the risk because I knew that that's what still gets appreciated. And you may fail once, but if you try it often again, you will succeed. And I took the chance and the entire country's quarter, depending on those two deals that I was leading again. But luckily both came in this time and we all looked like heroes at the end of it. But I think those softer things in terms of what the leader supports you
0: for, I think does matter tremendously in an organization. Very interesting. So that actually brings me to the next question around the culture of a sales organization itself. So you've already touched upon a few things, for example, uh, what gets appreciated. It's not just about the output that you should be worried about. You should also be worried about people or appreciate people who actually put in the method uh, and also actually work the process as well. Right. So uh, uh, apart from these things, are there any softer things that you think uh, uh, goes into uh, Creating a culture where sales uh, executives actually flourish.
1: I think the other area which I have not touched upon, which I think is vital, is this whole notion of teamwork and collaboration. And I know it's a fairly abused buzzword. But the thing is, at least in most B2B sales, things don't happen because of the skill set or the charms of one individual, it is a team sport. And I mean, since you have been at SAP, you know, how many people sometimes will be actors in a large deal situation. Um, You know, while someone might come in at the tail end to to do the closure, but somebody might have touched a customer at a marketing event in the first place. There is some person who might have touched that person in in an executive briefing center at some stage. Uh, There are gazillions of pre-sales people industry people, solution people who might have come in different stages to make things happen. And I think creating a culture where every cog of this wheel is properly understood, its importance appreciated, and the credit is taken by the team and not by an individual. I think is just immensely important. And even with the same company, I think we have all been in different places where we have seen those collaborative cultures exist or not exist. And the implications in my mind are tremendous of those situations. And I do feel that senior leaders in the organization carry the burden of creating that collaboration and teamwork. And once that stops happening, I just think that the system falls apart.
0: Uh, interesting. So we've, we've slightly touched upon uh, some of the things um, uh, around uh, uh, what leaders can do in order to you know create the culture of the sales organization uh, I would like to touch upon now slightly in terms of the results right so what motivates sales uh, sales executives so there is enough evidence in the scientific community that beyond a certain limit money doesn't motivate any people anymore and uh, can do more harm as incentive than um, can help but still most of the sales organizations continue to use this uh, as the only way to motivate their uh, behavior of their sales executives. So, there is, a, there, is a, there is something that doesn't fit here, right? So, what are your thoughts on that? So, first of all, I think it is important to understand that
1: different kinds of talent groups require different kind of motivation. So, if you are talking to an architect in an engineering situation, the way they get motivated is very different. Than, than, let's say a salesperson. Um, uh, you know, I was talking to someone like like I heard in Google, all engineers are allowed to use twenty percent of their time to project that they just want to do. It doesn't have to be part of the team that they are part of. It can be anything that they that they like to tinker around. And that is because that that creative freedom is vital to sort of the feeling of goodness for that particular kind of talent pool, Yeah. right? I think in a sales context, uh, con- uh, sale cons- context, it is still important to understand that what kind of animal are we dealing with? These are people who are optimistic. In fact, I'm going to digress. Bill McDermott, who is the current CEO, once made that famous statement saying that this is a breed of people. When somebody says, no, they hear maybe. When, when they say maybe, they hear yes. Yeah. And when somebody says yes, they hear now. <laughs> right? And so it is a fundamentally optimistic breed. If they were not optimistic, they will not be able to sell. They are risk takers. So you will also find that compensation plans of salespeople are more geared towards variable. So the variable, rather the fixed component is usually much lesser in sales compensation than in other professions. And that's again, because these are risk takers, they actually think that they control their destiny a lot more than other people do. And they want to be compensated to to that extent. I think whether we like it or not, this type of animal is more driven by money than other other comparable sort of colleagues or peers might be in the organization. That being said, your point is still well taken. Money is still not the only driver. I do think that, again, culture plays a very, very significant role. Uh, You know, the way individual in the organization plays a very important role. Uh, Whether there's teamwork in the organization or not plays a very important role. Uh, Whether people are being coached as opposed to being beaten on the head, that plays a very important role. And um, those softer aspects are as important, if not more to be able to drive performance, to be able to retain the best individuals. And I think those things do matter a lot. And again, I'm going to take an example and I know I'm sort of dropping names of individuals. During our best years of performance and even during our worst years of performance, we still wanted to stick around while Ranjan was there. And uh, it didn't matter that in some of the worst quarters, we made no money, but we still wanted to drive ourselves to the head. And that is because we felt that the culture existed in terms of why we needed to be, I actually do agree with your point, but I do also want to say that we should still not undermine the importance of incentives in driving behavior in sales, vis-a-vis other professions.
0: Okay, so kind of, um, uh, uh, I'd like to digress here a little bit and talk more about leadership in in general, right? So, uh, is is leading a sales organization very different from uh, uh, leading, uh, uh, let's say, for example, a development organization? That is a good question.
1: That is a good question. I think in general for any leadership role, I do feel it is important to be able to empathize with the set of people that you're dealing with. Um, so I think in that respect, it is of course easier for a sales leader to empathize with the sales organization than it might be. So on one hand, I was tempted to argue that you know leadership is a very horizontal skill. And at some level it is, when you look at CEOs, they actually come from one particular functional domain through their career, maybe, but eventually they're managing the whole organization. So it doesn't matter. Uh, A a leader has to be able to set a vision. A leader has to be able to communicate that vision and align the organization towards that vision. A leader has to be able to motivate people. They have to be able to lead people, hire the right people. And I think those skills in my mind still are very horizontal and remain the same. But your ability to drive an organization does depend on your ability to understand that organization as well. So for example, for me it to be very hard to lead a development organization, I just can't relate to those set of people. But that's also probably because of the stage of career I'm in. And you know, as you sort of grow up in your grow up in your career, Many of the functional domains don't matter as much and other qualities, whether it's, uh, you know, authenticity, integrity, vision, ability to motivate people. Those things matter a lot more uh, compared, to, uh, compared to specific functional orientation. And therefore, at some level, I would argue it it won't matter. It doesn't matter which organization you
0: lead. Interesting, so the other question that I also wanted to talk about when it comes to leadership and you also talked about CEOs, so we see a lot of sales executives go on to become CEOs of their organizations than uh, a lot of uh, people from technical departments or from other departments. So why do you think that uh, kind of uh, statistics exist and uh, I mean, so your thoughts on that?
1: You know I might disagree with your statement actually to begin with. I, I think that for product-based organizations, at least as far as I read the statistics, you will find that people coming from engineering backgrounds more often become CEOs as opposed to people from sales backgrounds. In services-oriented organizations, actually, it, it is a reverse. Um, and, um, but I actually don't think there is any good rule or causality behind it Uh, If it is the right kind of talent, they find their way up uh, through the chain for the right reasons. But I am actually not sure, therefore, that the data is supported by the fact that more sales leaders actually go on to become CEOs as opposed to the other way around.
0: Okay, so let let's just uh, uh, digress a little bit and talk about what uh, you are doing right now, if if that is okay with you. Sure so um, from a uh, from being the, from the vantage point of being a, a vc uh, investing uh, in uh, startups in the b2b space so do you see any uh, uh, any trends that uh, uh, you'd like to share with us
1: would i like to share any trends i think from a vc space perspective <clears throat> and i'll be very india specific mukesh because uh-huh. that is the market that i operate in i think a few things are happening number 1 we are finding that the average age of entrepreneurs is coming down very very rapidly. And the primary driver is that people out of grad schools today, I mean, when I say grad schools, it could be undergrad or it could be uh, graduate schools. People are increasingly getting weird towards entrepreneurship today than they were earlier. So for example, when I came out of IT, roughly 50% of my class went to US for higher studies. That percentage today is sub-5%. Many people used to go for India immediately. That percentage is also reducing very rapidly. Uh, People are much less insecure. They're not afraid of pursuing their dreams today. And I think that ability to try things out and they don't even worry about whether it succeeds or, or it doesn't succeed. So I think that risk taking capability has gone up. So there's a much smarter class of entrepreneurs coming, much younger class of entrepreneurs coming today. And they're able to scale much faster because today, when people are building products which are fundamentally cloud-based product, and in many cases, these are mobile-oriented products which are getting distributed through, uh, through through mobile apps, I think the distribution mechanisms have changed a lot as well. And therefore, the time compression has happened in terms of building value. So you will find that most people are beginning to invest earlier in earlier stages compared to waiting until the later stages because it, it becomes very hard to invest by the time you realize that something is clicking, it's already too late. You actually don't have a capability of writing a check by that time. So I think that is, that is one thing. Number two, from India, specifically in the context of B2B, one of the big changes is that India has classically been a services economy. Right since the 60s and 70s, we have enough examples from TCS to Infosys to Wipro. Then we had mine trees, uh, Techspan, et cetera. But lots of companies have come in services. India was never known for products. I mean, by 2017, it is estimated that India will have a larger number of developers than the United States, but we still don't create products. Now, that seems to have changed in the last few years as well. I think right now, there are more than 1,000 B2B product companies in India, and a good chunk of them have been created in the last two to three years. So suddenly, there is a new class of entrepreneurs, which is much bolder which is creating product based businesses in India, which just never existed. And that actually makes me very, very bullish about about uh, about the um, about the whole venture ecosystem. The third thing, which is also changing is that it is not just about having venture capitalists and the entrepreneurs. You need a lot of ecosystem around, particularly you need role models in terms of other entrepreneurs who have done it in the past. You need angel investors uh, you need incubators. Uh, you need, uh, you need uh, investment bankers. There are lots of different components in the picture which need to come together to be able to create good companies out of India. And I think that ecosystem has changed very rapidly for the positive in the country, uh, which again makes me feel very, very bullish. And um, I guess those are the things that keep me excited
0: um, in what I do. Super. So I think uh, uh, that kind of sums up what I wanted to uh, speak to you about. Uh, But before we go, final question. Uh, The show is called Pushing Beyond the Obvious. So what, according to you, is so obvious uh, and yet people miss?
1: Oh boy. Oh boy. I wish I was prepared for this question. (laughs) Um, What is it that is so obvious and yet people miss it? You know, I have a very generic answer for this thing. But I still do believe in it. I think we all tend to believe that we are very smart. And sometimes by even not being authentic, we believe that we can make our way through. And that is because we believe that people outside of me are stupid. But I think we should remember that everybody can read through what we are, what we are not. And... It is important to be authentic in whatever we do. Uh, world is far smarter than what we gave it credit for, uh, but somehow we still sort of live in a fool's paradise there, and we believe that we can deny, we can actually fool everyone else. Um,
0: <laughs> okay, super. So thanks a lot for taking time and talking to us today, Alok.
1: Thank you, Mukesh. It was a pleasure, and sorry it took a long time for us to schedule this thing.
0: No problem. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pushing Beyond the Obvious. If you like the show and would like to support, please head over to iTunes or wherever you are listening to the show and rate us and write a review. Till next time, have fun.